0: Welcome to Introduction to Feminist and Social Justice Studies. This is the 13th audio episode of the semester one course for the Gender, Sexuality, Feminist, and Social Justice Studies program at McGill University taking place in the fall of 2021. My name is Dr. Alex Ketchum. I'm your professor for this course. I'm joined by three teaching assistants who are graduate students at McGill University. Our teaching team will lead you through the materials of this course. Today's episode will build off of the last lecture. I will talk about the second shift in housework. This episode will talk about care and emotional labor, and we'll finish with a discussion of new models of labor. I will also speak about sexual harassment in the workplace and pregnancy discrimination. So that's a content warning for that. Let's get started. Today's song is American singer, songwriter, and actress Donna Summer's 1983 hit, She Works Hard for the Money. The song is based on an actual encounter that Summer had with an exhausted restroom attendant named Annetta Johnson, who was later mentioned in the song and featured on the album's back cover. The music video, however, features a white woman working a variety of low-paid jobs and then coming home and cooking for her children. There are lots of ways to approach the topic of labor. Labor has been a big topic throughout feminist activism. As I discussed in the last lecture, 19th and early 20th century feminists fought for women to be able to work outside of the home, whether they wanted to or not. Working class women had to deal with the ideology of the breadwinner wage, where men were paid more for working the same job on the assumption that they were supporting a family. Under this ideology, single mothers still received lower pay. We see traces of this still happening with the wage gap as discussed in the last lecture. The fight from the mid-20th century focused on women being able to work in greater ver- in a greater variety of jobs and to get education to do so. Feminists had to advocate against job listings in newspapers being divided by gender. Women had to organize in order to be accepted to many leading universities. McGills admitted women to some programs, but not all, since the 19th century. However, many universities, such as Yale, didn't let women in until 1968, Or Columbia University until 1983. While many universities let women attend some programs, it is really only in the past 50 years or so that many universities have opened up all programs to women. As I mentioned in an earlier lecture, women couldn't get credit cards in their own names without the approval of a father or husband in the US and Canada until the 1970s. Unable to get a line of credit, it was hard to start businesses. It wasn't until the 1970s when the term sexual harassment was coined regarding workplace harassment. It wasn't until the 1970s when it became illegal to fire women because they're pregnant. We will come back to this topic later in the lecture. Some of the issues in writing that brought women to feminism in the 1960s and 1970s was the topic of housework. The politics of doing housework continues to be an important issue today as women still do a disproportionate amount of housework, care work, and emotional labor. A key text in this history is Pat Minardi's 1970s text, The Politics of Housework. This article was originally published by Red Stockings in 1970. Red Stockings was an early women's liberation group centered in New York and was responsible for a number of influential writings. In this piece, Minardi discusses talking about housework with her husband. She says that he sees himself as being a liberal guy and that he says he believes in the liberation movements, but not when it affects his everyday life. When the topic of housework comes up, he makes all kinds of excuses. She recounts and interprets his excuses. She discusses how her allegedly liberated man doesn't want to change at home and their constant struggle over housework. She describes the way that he sabotages household chores in order to to make it so she won't ask him to ever do it again. The piece ends with a to-do list. One key part is that even when heterosexual couples have decided to evenly share housework, there's an issue of what Minority calls as backsliding. She writes, Keep checking up. Periodically consider who's actually doing the jobs. These things have a way of backsliding so that a year later, once again, the woman is doing everything. After a year, make a list of jobs the man has rarely, if ever, done. You will find cleaning pots, toilets, refrigerators, and ovens high on the list. Use timesheets if necessary. He will accuse you of being petty. He is above that sort of thing, housework. Bear in mind what the worst jobs are, namely the ones that have to be done every day or several times a day. Also the ones that are dirty. It's more pleasant to pick up books, newspapers, etc. than to wash dishes. Alternate the bad jobs. It's the daily grind that cuts you down. Also make sure you don't have the responsibility for the housework with occasional help from him. I'll cook dinner for you tonight implies it's really your job and he isn't he such a nice guy to do some of it for you. End quote. This piece is from 1970, but lines like this can be quite relatable for many women today. The final lines of the article are, I was just finishing this when my husband came in and asked what I was doing, writing a paper on housework. Housework, he said? Housework? Oh my god, how trivial can you get? A paper on housework! End quote. Minardi thinks that a key point of the revolution for social change begins at home. Housework continues to be a key theme in feminist writings, as his labor is often discounted and rendered invisible in discussions about the economy. It is work that is disproportionately done by women and is not regarded with value. It is unpaid. Another key text from this genre is... Why I Want a Wife, by Judy Cyphers, from 1971. This classic piece of, piece of feminist humor appeared in the premier issue of Ms. Magazine and was widely circulated in the women's movement periodicals. Cyphers writes, I belong to that classification of people, known as wives. I am a wife. She writes that she wishes she could have someone who would cook and clean for her all day and be expected to be happy about it while she got to write just like her husband gets to. These pieces of writing are both from 50 years ago, yet many of the points they make about unpaid housework continue today. Perhaps you've noticed that throughout this course, I've used the phrase work outside the home. That is very intentional. Here I am pushing against the assumption that only what is done outside of the home is work. Now, during a pandemic, with so many of us doing paid labor from home, perhaps this distinction seems arbitrary, but I want to emphasize that the home is a site of labor, and not all of that labor is paid. I want to draw attention to the fact that while cooking, cleaning, child care, elder care, family care within the household are usually unpaid, this is still labor. It is unremunerated, which is a fancy way of saying unpaid. I say the phrase work outside the home as a way to remind us that household work is also work, and it is work that the economy depends on. In Marx's terms, despite Marx's own lack of discussion around this type of labor, this is reproductive labor. It is beyond birthing the next generation of workers. Reproductive labor is feeding workers. It is labor that reproduces the conditions that enable workers to work. Capitalism depends on this work. A variety of folks have tried to estimate what all this labor would cost the economy if it was actually paid. Most of the estimates are based on standard wages for hiring someone to cook a meal, someone to buy groceries, someone to plan meals, someone to clean, the cost of babysitters and daycare, etc. You get the idea. Estimates vary, but from a 2018 article from CNBC, which tried to put numbers on it. According to the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, men in the United States spent 150. dollars minutes a day about 17.5 hours a week doing unpaid labor. Women spend about 243.2 minutes doing unpaid labor each day about 28.4 hours a week. When you add both paid and unpaid work together, women still work longer hours. The Bureau of Labor Statistics reports that Americans earn an average of $26.82 an hour. That means that if men and women were com- compensated for their unpaid labor, men would earn an extra $469.35 a week, and women would earn an extra $761.69 a week, which comes out to nearly $40,000 a year. It's important to note that that housekeeping professionals actually earn an average of $11.84 an hour and childcare workers earn $10.18 an hour. Even if invisible labor is compensated at just $10 an hour, men would earn an extra $175 a week and women would pocket $284 more a week. If you want to see this outside of the U.S. context, I've linked to a video in the transcripts by the United Nations UN Women in which UN expert Shahara Razavi, reveals the real value of unpaid care and how we can reduce the burden on women by tackling entrenched stereotypes. In this video, she explains how, around the world, women do the vast majority of unpaid work, including childcare, cooking, cleaning, and farming. This unpaid work is essential for households and economies to function, but it is also valued less than paid work. The video talks about statistics from countries such as Argentina, Tanzania, and Switzerland. Despite the variety of methods used to calculate the amount of money women would make if they were paid for this labor, or estimates to see the impact on the economy if this labor is paid, the studies all agree that women as a group do more unpaid reproductive work than men. I say as a group, since of course there are some cases where this isn't actually the case. Taking into account non-heteronormative families, single parents, people who live alone, people who live in multifamily housing, and looking at countries and cultures across the world, in general, women do the majority of this reproductive labor. This brings us to the Wages for Housework movement. Okay, so the International Wages for Housework campaign was co-founded in 1972 by Selma James, Maria Rosa de la Costa, and... Sylvia Federici, and Bridget Gaultier, and was organized around the principle that women should be paid for performing the socially necessary labor of housework and childcare. Sylvia Federici, one of the founders, writes, One of the most important contributions of feminist theory and struggle, which is the redefinition of work and the recognition of women's unpaid reproductive labor as a key source of capitalist accumulation. In redefining housework as work, as not a personal service, but the work that produces and reproduces labor power, feminists have uncovered a new crucial ground of exploitation that Marx and Marxist theory completely ignored. All the important political insights contained in those analyses are now brushed aside as if they were of no relevance to an understanding of the present organization of production." End quote. Wages for Housework build off of an Italian Marxist feminist framework. In the Wages for Against Housework pamphlet that I assigned for today's class, Federici shows how capitalism has tried to naturalize the role of women doing housework. She asks, how natural is it if it takes 20 years to prepare women for these roles? Here, Federici writes, if we start from this analysis, we can see the revolutionary implications of the demand for wages for housework. It is the demand by which our nature ends and our struggle begins, because just to want wages for housework means to refuse that work as the expression of our nature, and therefore to refuse precisely the female role that capital has invented for us. End quote. This is a role that harms women as it takes away as Housewives are vulnerable due to divorce and death as they're not paid for their labor and are dependent on on others. For women who also work outside the home, this time spent coming home and doing more housework is time away from being able to do paid work, relax, or to spend time doing things they enjoy. Federici wants to make clear what wages for housework movement is not. She writes, It should be clear, however, that when we struggle for a wage, we do not struggle to enter capitalist relations because we have never been out of them. We struggle to break capital's plan for women, which is an essential moment of that planned division of labor and social power within the working class through which capital has been able to maintain its power. Wages for housework, then, is a revolutionary demand, not because by itself it destroys capital, but because it attacks capital and forces it to restructure social relations relations in order in terms more favorable to us and consequently more favorable to the unity of the class in fact to demand wages for housework does not mean to say that if we are paid we will continue to do it it precisely means the opposite to say that we want money for housework is the first step towards refusing to do it because the demand for a wage makes our work visible which is the most indispensable condition to begin to struggle against it both in its immediate aspect as housework, and its more insidious character as femininity. This movement found fitting around the world. The New York Wages for Housework Committee made the connection between housework and reproductive oppression. In their pamphlet, to which I have included an image of in the transcript, the committee makes the argument that governments want to control women's bodies and how many children they have for capitalist purposes. They highlight two issues in particular forced sterilization, and forced maternity. Thus, activism centers on reproductive justice, a topic we will discuss more in further lectures. The committee wants reproductive justice, which is the power to decide whether or not they want to have children, when, how many, and under what conditions. They want us to see children beyond just as future workers, writing, when the workers we produce are not disciplined enough, or when we claim some money for the cost of raising them, that is, When we are not disciplined enough, they sterilize us. They view non-consensual sterilization as a form of genocide to stop their struggle and activism, as in the U.S. context from which they are writing, women on welfare, black women, and other women of color are the main target. Here, the New York committee draws the links between the discourse that naturalizes the role of housework for women under capitalism and reproductive justice. They discuss the ways that women are not only expected to perform housework without pay, but they must not be unruly and in any way that threatens capitalism. Governments exert exert control over some populations more than others in order to enforce this, and we can see how race and class are key here. A prime example of how unpaid care work is rendered invisible and undervalued is written into the federal United States welfare policy. The 1996 Personal Responsibility and Work Opportunity Reconciliation Act, a component of the Temporary Assistance to Needy Families, TANF, or TAMF, stipulates that half of families receiving TAMP assistance must be engaged in a work activity for at least 30 hours a week, 20 hours a week for single parents with young children, without systematically funding quality and affordable childcare. This codifies into law the social assumption that women's domestic labor is not valuable in the market economy. In Canada, there were several wages for housework committees and chapters. I linked in the transcript to information about the Toronto chapter. While some women were focused on the wages for housework movement, some middle and upper class women instead outsourced reproductive work. For middle and upper class women who worked outside the home and were financially able to do so, the solution for unequal housework responsibilities was and is outsourcing this work by hiring nannies and professional house cleaners. Child care work and professional cleaning work is usually low-paid labor, primarily done by women, women of color and immigrants. Do the majority of these jobs. So here we see the shift of this work from some women with more privilege to other women. Since the 1970s, we have seen the development of new terms in order to better understand the role of unpaid housework. For some women who work outside of the home, when they return home, they still often do the majority of housework. Sociologist Arlie Hochschild named this phenomenon the second shift. In the book The Second Shift, Working Parents and the Revolution at Home, Hoschild and Anne Menchung discussed the double burden experienced by late 20th century employed mothers. This classic text was first published in 1989. It was reissued in 2012 with updated data. The second shift and high expectation that burdens, mothers in particular, leads to the phenomenon of supermoms and pressures to be supermom. Journalist Jessica Valenti writes, Americans need to stop believing that women do the majority of care work, because we want to it's because we're expected to because we're judged if we don't and most of all because it's incredibly difficult to find male partners willing to do an equal share of work so let's stop saying that's motherhood that holds up women's careers it's not the institution parenthood that makes ad- advancing at work difficult it's not our kids it's that there's no chance of equality at work while there's inequality at home it's not that women can't have it all it's that men won't stop taking it the idea of supermom gets weaponized against women. This unrealistic expectation at home and in workplaces makes being a parent difficult. The gendered expectations on mothers makes this burden intense. Here we see the pervasiveness of patriarchy and heteronormativity. Here we see these gendered expectations in couples consisting of men and women. Far less is on these burdens in same-sex relationships or relationships with non-binary folks. In addition to looking at the physical tasks of household labor, other feminist writers and researchers have looked at other kinds of unpaid labor that burden women. One type is emotional labor. So a bit of a backstory. In 1983, sociologist Arlie Hochschild coined the term in her book, The Managed Heart. Yes, the same Hochschild who coined the second shift. However, in her book, she was describing emotional labor with a narrower meaning than the term is used today. It was meant to describe a component of some service industry jobs in which workers must project a different emotion than the one they are experiencing, for example, how flight attendants are expected to smile all the time, no matter what. However, this idea gets expanded, particularly in the 2010s. Emotional labor now refers to the invisible and often undervalued work involved in keeping other people comfortable and happy. This can include labor and personal relationships, such as listening to friends, partners, and family members, checking in with people, doing the work to maintain personal relationships, and more. While being in relation with others will involve these kinds of interactions, women disproportionately do this work. This idea then gets expanded to the idea of the mental load, which helps us think about not only emotional labor, but also mental labor. French comic artist Emma created a great comic to explain this phenomenon, first published in French and then in English. I've linked to a section of the comic in the transcript. The section is called You Should Have Asked, and it she describes the work primarily done by women, keeping track of what chores need to be done, making the grocery list, registering the kid for summer camp, knowing the birthdays of your children's friends, remembering the gifts to send relatives, scheduling dental appointments, and all the little details like that. She says that, even when men do half of the chores in a household, women are still often tasked with being the household managers, keeping track of all the details of what needs to be done. This mental load takes the space of thinking about other things. The mental load is gendered. What is interesting about all of this is that we've taken for granted so many of these divisions of labor. As Federici discusses, we've been trained to see these divisions as natural. However, there's nothing inherent about this kind of structure that prioritizes the nuclear family, that prioritizes the nuclear family work, and household structures could be structured in so many different ways. This is an argument made by Ruth Schwartz-Cohen in More Work for Mother when she talks about the ways that household technologies didn't have to be based around the nuclear family. Early 20th century reformers such as Charlotte Perkins Gilman wrote about shared kitchens used by an entire block of families or individuals. Same with laundry. There are a wide variety of models of cooperatives, of shared cooking and cleaning. As has been a theme in this course, another world is possible. Although housework was and is of high importance in feminist writings, work outside of the home has also been key. Building off of issues that I discussed in the last lecture, I want to draw attention to some important issues that we see in feminist writings and activism related to work outside the home. I want to focus on issues of representation, sexual harassment, pregnancy discrimination, and difficulties for parents, especially during the pandemic. So the first is representation. This is a theme that we'll see come up in the media lecture as well. Feminists have fought hard for women to be able to enter male dominated workplaces, we have seen this in fights for women, for folks of color, and other marginalized groups to not only have positions within workplaces, but also to have positions of power. When it's important, while it's important that women and folks of color are in the room, we often see marginalized people relegated to positions with only certain departments, within only certain departments, or not in positions of power, or relegated to low-paying positions. The fight isn't just about having diverse voices in the workplace, but also working to make sure that those voices are able to be heard. Are employees from marginalized groups actually able to share their opinions or not? Are they silenced? Is their presence tokenized? When workplaces make efforts to recruit people from a broader range of communities, are they actually reforming their workplaces or allowing for radical transformation Or are people brought in and then tokenized? Are they only brought in when an organization is struggling and are faced with an impossible task and then are blamed for the failing organization or company? In the transcript, I included an image that explains the phenomenon of what happens when individuals are brought into an organization without the organization actually being interested in transformation. The Center for Community Organizations, COCO, Works to help build a more socially just world by supporting the health and well being of community organizations in Quebec. Coco has described the phenomenon of the problem woman of color in the workplace. This chart is adapted from the Chronicle of the Problem Woman of Color in a nonprofit by the Safe House Progressive Alliance for Nonviolence. In the chart, a woman of color enters the organization run by white leadership. First, the woman of color feels welcome, needed, and happy. However, it appears that the organization is not interested in transformative change, and she was a tokenized hire. The woman experiences repetitive injury and microaggressions in the organization. So after the honeymoon period, her reality is that The woman of color points out issues within the organization. She tries to work within the organization's structure and policies, and she pushes for accountability. Rather than the organization changing, she receives the response of the denial of racism. The organization responds and denies, ignores, and blames. The responsibility of fixing the problem is placed on the woman of color. People of color within the organization are pitted against each other. The woman of color also experiences retaliation. The organization then decides that the woman of color is the problem and targets her. The organization labels the conflict as a communications issue of claims that she is not qualified or not a good fit. The woman of color then exits the organization. True inclusion doesn't just mean that there are diverse voices in the room, but that these voices are actually listened to and that folks have positions to be able to affect change. Another key topic raised by Feminists in regards to work is raising the issue of sexual harassment. Journalist Lynn Farley was teaching a course in the mid-1970s at Cornell University on women and work. She decided to hold a consciousness-raising session with women in her class, quizzing them on their workplace experiences. The answers Farley got wove an unfortunate pattern. She recounts the experience of listening to everyone having already had an experience of having either been forced to quit a job or been fired because they had rejected the sexual overtures of a boss. She recently explained in an interview with Brooke Gladstone for On the Media. She added, When I left the class, I thought that we needed to have a name for what this phenomenon was. We all needed to be talking about the same thing. The term publicly debuted in 1975 when Farley testified about her work at Cornell before the Commission on Human Rights of New York City. She said it was extremely widespread. A year later, Redbrook published a survey in which 80% of the women responding had experienced sexual harassment on the job. By having a common term, it became easier to discuss the phenomenon and was key in setting legal precedents. that have also been important in the hashtag MeToo movement. Catherine McKinnon, whose work on sex work we will discuss more in the next lecture, was pretty key for a lot of the legal theory, which linked harassment and discrimination. I've linked in the transcripts of the article that I just quoted from, discussing the history in more detail. A more thorough discussion of the hashtag MeToo movement will be saved for the lecture on violence. Another challenge feminists have fought against has been pregnancy discrimination. In 1971, the Canadian Human Rights Act... Prohibited Discrimination Related to Pregnancy, pregnancy discrimination, Pregnancy-related discrimination, discrimination is considered to be a form of sex discrimination. Discriminatory practices related to pregnancy, such as negative treatment, refusal to hire, or promote, termination of employment, or harassment are against the law under the Act. Pregnancy discrimination in the workplace and pregnancy in the workplace is a human rights issue of equality of opportunity between all genders. Women and people who can become pregnant, such as non-binary and trans individuals, should not suffer negative consequences in the workplace simply because they're pregnant. Job functions and workplace rules may affect a pregnant employee differently than other employees. As a result, adjustments to working conditions may be required to reduce or eliminate discriminatory effects. In the United States, the Pregnancy Discrimination Act of 1978, as a US federal statute, it is amended Title 7 of the Civil Rights Act of 1974 to prohibit sex discrimination on the basis of pregnancy. The Act covers discrimination on the basis of pregnancy, childbirth, or related medical conditions. Employees with fewer than 15 em- employers with fewer than 15 employees are excluded from the Act. Employers are exempted from providing medical coverage for elective abortions unless the mother's life is threatened, but are required to provide disability and sick leave, for women who are recovering from an abortion the legal language here focuses on and speaks to women and not everyone who can become pregnant pregnancy discrimination still is rampant it might be illegal but it still happens a 2019 new york times article by natalie Kitroff and jessica silver greenberg entitled pregnancy discrimination is rampant inside america's biggest companies discusses how many pregnant women have been systematically sidelined in the workplace. They're passed over for prom- promotions and raises. They're fired when they complain. We also see discrimination when women have kids, known as the motherhood penalty. A report from the Harvard Kennedy School Women and Policy Program looks to the ways that mothers are perceived in the workplace. The key here is the perception. The study isn't about their actual production or commitment. Women with children are evaluated at average as 12% less committed to their jobs than non mothers. Fathers, however, were perceived to be 5% more committed to their jobs than non fathers. Childless women are 8.5 times more likely to be recommended for a promotion than their equal female counterpart who had a child. Men in general are found to be held to less standards. Or lower standards when it comes to punctuality, whereas women with children receive the least amount of tolerance and were reprimanded more hastily than either gender without children. Women with children make an average starting of eight starting salary of eight percent less than non-mothers. Let's also remember that women in general already make between ten to seventeen percent less than men with the same experience in the same role. The author is right. Mothers in the workplace experience additional disadvantage compared to women who are not mothers, including a per-child wage penalty. The motherhood penalty may account for a significant proportion of the gender pay, the gender gap in pay, as the pay gap between mothers and non-mothers could in fact be larger than the pay gap between men and women. Mothers also face additional disadvantages compared to childless women and men. Some studies show that visibly pregnant women are judged as being less committed to their jobs less dependable, less authoritative, more emotional, and more rational than otherwise equal non-pregnant female managers. During the pandemic, with so many schools and daycares closed, as discussed in the last lecture, women are facing the motherhood penalty in more extreme ways. I linked to three articles in the transcripts which discuss this phenomenon further. For a piece that really brings together the themes from the last two lectures, see America's First Female Recession by Julia Rice. Rise writes, For the first time since they have begun a consistent upward climb in the labor force in the 1970s, women are now suffering the repercussions of a system that still treats them unequally. Men are still the primary breadwinners. Women are still the primary low-income workers, the ones whose jobs disappeared when coronavirus spread mothers in 2020's pandemic have reduced their work hours four to five times more than fathers to care for children in a nation that hasn't created a strong caregiving foundation when the economy crumbled women fell hard what women in america are now living is the consequence of years of occupational segregation that kept them out of managerial positions stuck in low-paying jobs with few safeguards like sick leave when a third of the female workforce the grocery clerks Home health aides and social workers became essential workers this year. They are faced with difficult decisions about preserving their health or keeping their jobs. The rest found themselves more likely to be in positions that vanished overnight, like the housekeepers and retail clerks, or on the margins, and the jobs at risk of never coming back. Together, the losses threatened decades of steady, hard-won progress. These themes can be found in Deb Perlman's New York Times piece entitled, In the COVID-19 economy, you can have a kid or a job, you can't have both, in which she writes, Our struggle is not an emotional concern. We are not burnt out. We are being crushed by an economy that has bafflingly declared working parents inessential. We also see these themes in Andrea Flynn's piece, The All-Consuming Emotional Labor Caused by Coronavirus and Shouldered by Women, from Ms. Magazine. Due to many factors, as we have discussed today and in the last lecture, women are bearing the labor burdens of the pandemic disproportionately. Academic journals have shown that women are submitting for fewer articles during the period. This metric is an indicator of the phenomenon, will result in fewer women contributing to academia, which further skews who is writing our histories, doing research, and framing our narratives. Here at McGill... There is a lack of support for students who are parents. The few resources that exist seem to be primarily for graduate students with a room for breastfeeding and using breast pumps in Thompson House, the Graduate Student Building. When classes happened on campus, most resources for undergraduates were at the SMU Center, which has been under construction and closed for the last couple of years. I've included the McGill family map, which shows what bathroom facilities have changing tables. On the map, there is only one nursing room, and it is a building that requires a graduate student ID card. These kinds of lack of resources of support make it difficult for student parents and parents who work outside of the home. This brings us to another important point. Parental leave is another huge issue. Disparities in parental leave across countries is a huge issue. The economy depends on reproductive labor. Yet women are punished for having children, and even sometimes even if women do not have children, they're punished in their career trajectory because of the assumption that they may have children. If people of all genders were encouraged to take time for parental leave, for leave to care for elders, and do other care work, everyone would have gaps in their careers regardless of gender. Countries such as Sweden have created parental leave programs and policies that gently encourage fathers to take paternity leave, Finding that reduces the motherhood penalty, as people of all genders can have gaps in their career trajectory. They also find that it means that fathers are more likely to be involved in parenting as their children get older. On the other end of the spectrum, the United States doesn't even have guaranteed paid maternity leave. Insufficient parental leave policies contribute to many of the problems discussed in today's lecture. Housework needs to be done. Reproductive work is essential for our survival. However, as Federici and the Wages for Housework writers and activists make clear, it is only because of social norms that women face this work disproportionately. By only valuing some kinds of labor over others, we create oppressive hierarchies, and those hierarchies are gendered and racialized. The motherhood penalty, second shift, and pregnancy discrimination stem from exploitative workplace hierarchies and, of course, sexism. The solution is not avoiding this reproductive work, but rather reimagining and remaking our systems of labor to value interdependence over independence, to create systems that are about our communities thriving. Cooking and care work, raising children if one wants, and investing in friendships, family, and relationships can bring us a lot of joy. Imagine if we had an economy where we actually got paid living wages and had the time to do this reproductive labor, have time to rest have time to be with people we care about, and have time to thrive. Adrian Marie Brown's books, Emergent Strategy, Shaping Change, Changing Worlds, and Pleasure Activism, The Politics of Feeling Good, encourage us to inv- instead invest into interdependence. The Mushroom at the End of the World on the Possibility of Life in Capitalist Ruins from 2015 by anthropologist Anna Singh also helps us to think about labor divisions and the role of collaboration and interdependence. There are many ways to approach the topics of labor and work. In the next lecture, we will discuss sex work. All the video songs, images, and graphics used in podcasts and transcripts belong to their respective owners and I do not claim any right over them. The opening bell sound is schoolbell.wave from 13th Panskas, Transkin, The closing bell is from Inspector Deuce, E.Wave of freesound.org. Fair dealing is an exception in Canadian Copyright Act that outlines the permitted and authorized use of copyright materials for specific mandated purposes. In Canada, these purposes include research, private study, education, parody, satire, criticism, review, and news reporting. For research and private say, education, merit, and satire, no special requirements are required. For criticism, review, and news reporting, the source and author must be named to constitute fair dealing. This is an advertisement free podcast used for education educational purposes.